back. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And I wanted to talk about your chapbook, Time on Traveler's Journal, today.、Um, maybe you could like, describe like, the layout of it a bit for people listening.、Uh, it's, it's a long narrative poem, prosy, I guess.、Uh, you know, I get in these fits where I, I'll write、uh, poems that are 12 to 16 pages long. And, You know, they tell a single story for the most part.、Um, I did that with the poem I have called、uh, Bring Pigs to the Wedding,、uh, which was about a marriage, <laughs>、uh, a marriage proposal.、Uh, I did it with、uh, a poem called Tangerine Tubman, which was like、uh, a love affair that occurred during the Underground Railroad.、Um, And some other poems that haven't been published yet that are pages and pages long. They'll never probably ever be published. And this is one, the Time Unrivaler's Travel Journal is one I've been working on for probably eight years at least.、Um, I had published. A version of it on Amazon. It was, like, it was probably half the length it is now. I think I had it on Amazon for about a month before I took it down and started working on, the, on it again. But it's、um, set up as a series of、uh, diary entries、uh, on various days、uh, where a Custodian in the 25th century is you know, thinking about、uh, you know, time travel has been invented. The authorities that be have traveled time. It's kind of like a tourist thing. You, know, you, you, know, you and your family will go a thousand years in the past or 10,000 years in the past and you know, visit whatever historical events happen. And this Custodian who's black is like thinking, like, maybe I can go back in time and、uh, change the course of African American history as far as in regards to slavery. So you just this set up as a series of him giving this thoughts, you know, how, how he would proceed over the course of several days. So and then Because I can't leave well enough alone.、Uh, I had thought about continuing it as a, as a longer poem,、uh, but it, it ended where, I, where, it, where it ends. And then I just did a sequel poem of events that follows in this same chapbook、uh, called The Sankofa Paradox,、uh, which is probably closer to an actual poem than the previous work, work in the collection. But this. It's sci fi for, for the most part. I'm fascinated with sci fi Afrofuturism as it plays out,、uh, Afro surrealism. Yeah, I, I totally get that from reading it. In the, in the chapbook, you have a line that's like、um, the, the, the journalist, the journal entryist <laughs> writes, like, left sci fi in need of stitches. Yeah. Yeah, and,、um, <laughs> you know, you, you go through a lot of. 
I guess, sci-fi tropes and kind of dystopian things. Like there's a Starbucks logo on the sun in the, <laughs> the yeah. guy, there's the guy is the thought, um, what an entertaining thought. Could I really go back and sink the Santa Maria? <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I think, um, I think it started with uh, the whole idea uh, started with uh, riding the back, uh, riding the night on the back of a camel, saying the Dutch, the Portuguese, and the British are coming. Because uh, it was like, who, who are the Paul Revere types of being to warn the inland? You know, there are, you know, these visitors coming to our shores aren't what they aren't who they said they were, or they're coming, you know, with nefarious reasons. And, you know, someone has to be warned. So it was like, I, I know there would have had to have been someone uh, during that age, there were more uh, solidified uh, kingdoms existing at that time. There would have had to, had to have been messengers or spies or someone keeping track on the comings and goings. So I'm like, well, there would have had to have been someone in that role to say, yeah, we need to watch out for these people. We don't know exactly. They don't come with the best intention. And um, that got me thinking, you know, as far as dystopia goes, uh, all the, you know, you have all, that's like the theme in modern sci-fi, you know, end of the world, dystopianism. And it, you know, it dawned on me that for, you know, an African people, the dystopia, we've been living in the dystopia for 400 plus years. You know, our world ending, altering events already took place where aliens came in, invaded us and, you know, laid waste to our way of life. And we've had to adjust how we live in the shadow of this adjustment or readjustment. So for us, you know, we've been in dystopia. You know, the past 400 years are dystopia. It's not like a theory, like, you know, what will, what will happen if a meteor hits the world or zombies rise or vampires attack? We've already had that, you know. We've come and had, you know, generations of our children, you know, snatched out of their beds, out of their homes in Africa to be brought you know, to a land that's foreign to them, work. I don't know how much more dystopian, you know, it can get than that. So that began my concept of the whole thing. Yeah, I was reading um, a Cesare poem the other day, and it had a good line about that. Like, uh, it was like, what can I do about it? You must begin. Begin what? The only thing in the world worth beginning. The end of the world, my God. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I feel like I see that theme a lot in, you know, diff different like Afro surrealist or um, Afro futurist texts that you know the the dystopia has been here for for centuries, and I yeah. guess too something else that you, you there's a lot in there about like the dystopia and dysto the dystopian present of the chapbook, but there's also a lot of imagining I guess a, a better future, a future where this didn't happen. Well, that's still kind of unknown because there's no guarantee. You go through and you change history, and you you know you. No one can control every single aspect, every single detail. Um, so you don't know what new evil or new danger arises when you 
change one known for the unknown. So the hope is, yeah, that, you know, things will be better. You know, you know, when has mankind in, you know, the past thousand years, 2,000 years, when have we ever done things collectively to make things better for everyone? So, I mean, that's the hope. Uh, I don't really write about that. I think it was thought about that, you know, the, the figure in the story. Uh, outside of being a street sweeper, he has a good life. You know, he talks about his wife and kids, and he loves them, and he doesn't want to lose that. And is where he is in his life at that moment, is it worth losing that to go back in time to, you know, try to offer that everybody? So, you know, that's his dilemma. Yeah, and, like, I guess maybe we should talk about, like, the the main the main character in this the the narrator i guess is uh is a janitor like in in kentucky i guess like what made you yeah. like make that choice i guess it just a home home state call this knows where i'm from and um probably in my longer narratives i think he's kind of based on me and the questions i would have to, with myself so and i've often said you know you know, there was this, uh, there's a movement or a um, a cultural thing that we do as black people. We've been doing it since probably the 60s or 70s. <clears throat> and us trying to reconnect with who we were as Africans be beyond being labeled as subhuman. We refer to each other as kings and queens. You know, we'll say, you know, what's up, black man? What's up, king? What's up, queen? Um, so, you know, and I love that idea. But that also, I also like touching on the normal. Like, yeah, it's okay to be a king or queen. Um, but there's nothing wrong with, like, you know, being a blacksmith or, you know, a, or a street sweeper. So I, I've always said I come from a long line of, you know, street sweepers historically. So I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, there's nothing wrong with just the common everyday, you know, citizen, wherever you are. That's, there's beauty in that. You know, kings and queens for sure, but, you know, street sweepers and the people who get stuff done in the course of a day just doing their job. So. Uh, the narrator in the story is kind of all these uh, the mythology I apply to myself in my own past. He kind of embodies that. Yeah, it actually reminded me of um, there's a video game called Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor where you just like <laughs> walk around a small like alien spaceport and pick up trash mm -hmm. to like pay for food. And that's like, okay. that's it. That's the whole game. <laughs> I've never heard of it. I have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, it has a has a cool aesthetic. I think it's like a really kind of psychedelic and colorful, but also, you know, it's it's a pretty bleak game because all you're doing is trying to survive. Yeah, that's life, though. Yep, that's uh, definitely the that's definitely the point. But um, 
I guess too, I wanted to ask like in terms of like thinking about how you were gonna make this make like the the world that this character that this uh that the narrator inhabits like how did you how did you think that through because like in sci-fi right now it feels like there's there's so much like world building and i can just tell usually writers put like i don't know when i read a sci-fi novel it feels like the writer usually spends like you know years trying to just construct every detail of the world and did you did you go through that i i did and it's for a poet it's kind of frustrating uh because you you want to work you want to deal with uh the most poets aren't necessarily world builders uh we you know we're bards we tell a tale whether there's some a, a morality tale or we keep track of something historical or we can maybe we combine the elements maybe we borrow from some fantasy or some pantheon of gods or but rarely do we just completely build worlds from scratch and, and, and make those poems because it's kind of, it's not really what poets tend to do. So with me trying to come up with, and I think that's why I, this poem is longer than it initially was. It was trying to do some of this world building. I'm like, okay, I should probably uh research a little bit of you know physics or those some of the like some of the names I mentioned in the poem I can't think of I think it's Kwaku or someone um who have you know have worked with you know string theories and you know the possibilities of, of time travel and uh so I had to look in look up do a little research most of it was just like Google and Wikipedia uh, but I wanted to include some of those things, to, you know, to up the the ante, so to speak. So, yeah, I, I did a lot of that. That and it it's frustrating because, like, okay, how do I work this into a poem? Now that I have this theory of quantum physics or whatever, how do I apply that into this narrative? Not just throw it in there to where it, you know there's an abstract fact how do i actually incorporate it into the story and probably the one section that i did that you know a, his, his day has come to an end he's ready to go home to give this subject more thought about time travel and you know he's trying to figure out how he's going to get home he's like oh he's too late to it's like a, the transportation the teleportation system is inoperable at this at this hour so he's trying to figure out you know maybe i could jet jet pack it or maybe i'll take uh you know there's a horse and buggy <laughs> maybe he lives like 80 miles away uh, and so he has you know he's trying to figure out you know how to pay for these expenses to get home so that detail which has nothing else to do with the rest of the poem you know, it's just adding some some detailed background into, you know, how his, his day is ended. So, and that had other elements at one point um, that I had to delete and cut out for the sake of, okay, this is, this is getting away from me. This is already too long as it is. I've got to start editing, you know, for the sake of the story. Otherwise, I need to just go ahead and write, you know, traditional fiction. You know, if I'm going to try to 
uh, keep enlarging the elements of his story. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, like, so what? What? What is that distinction for you between, I guess, the fiction and the poetry that you've done in this in this chapbook? I I don't know if there is any really, other than just the way I I label it, you know, as I present it and say I say this is prose, I say this is a narrative poem. You know, maybe in actuality it is just you know short fiction. And I, my partner, she did that for me with with. Um, my Tangerine Tubman, which is a long narrative prose poem. Uh, she writes fiction, so she went back and formatted it as a short story for me, and I try to submit it as a short story. It hasn't, hasn't been picked up. All the 15 places I submitted it to all rejected it. But, but with a little work, yeah, this could easily just be a short story. And I've been thinking about that lately. Uh, if I if I'm to continue to write, because I've been writing since like '85, I feel almost poemed out to a certain extent. Uh, I used to write um, like five poems a day up until the early 2000s. From '85, um, I had a job where that was pretty much self-sufficient and. I can make time for myself to sit and write in between, you know, doing actual work. And when I began to slow down, when I went from like five poems a day to five poems a week, I felt like the world had ended. You know, so it was just like, oh no, I've lost my ability to write poems. You know, and you know, I know my my sister is a poet, and she went from writing poems to creating, uh, doing fabric art. And she might write poems, you know, once, once a year now, at, at best, you know, maybe once every five years. I'm like, can you still be a poet and do that? So I don't know. I don't know. I know there are poets who do. Uh, it takes them forever to write a series of poems, but um, I don't know what that means for me. I don't know if I'll continue to want to write poems. I have two full-length collections coming out next year. I have enough for a third collection. I'm hoping someone picks it up. Uh, that one is has some of the more sci-fi elements, Afrofuturistic elements um, involved in it. There's a series I have uh, called Farragut Bro, which is kind of my answer to uh, Snow White. Uh, she's a very dark-skinned uh, heroine, and I have—I guess it's probably 25 poems that she's featured in. And some of those things are centered, maybe like antebellum era. Some are centered in the future, so it's not like a she's restricted to a timeline or a theme. Uh, some are fairy tale based. Um, but I use her to try to fill a void where, because of American history, Black folks have not allowed to venture into as far as storytelling goes until recently. So I'm trying to use her to fill a void in, in storytelling. And those are all poems. 
or narrative poems. Some are two or three pages long. Some I've tried, I'm trying to write short. It's very difficult now. I offer a lot of praise to poets who can write, you know, six or seven lines and have a very complete world in, in those seven lines. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to that point. I've done some things like that in the past. It's just, it's amazing. I think it's actually, I think it's lazy at some point to, to write a two-page poem, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's the easier form as opposed to saying, okay, well, what could I do to, to cut back, to cut out 12 lines? What one metaphor could I come up with to replace that? Uh, but I found that boring for me. I, 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 could, I could do that. I'm not that type of poet. I don't... Um, I've read poems that where every third line is just the gorgeous, you know, turn on words and phrases. Um, you're, you're left marveling at how well worded this poem was, and you feel good inside yourself. But oftentimes you don't really know what the poem was about. So I'd rather write a poem where everyone knows what it's about and maybe have it written well as opposed to hide everything, you know, behind layers of, you know, metaphor, similes. But that's just me as a writer. Well, when you were, when you were writing this, this chapbook, were you, were you still like working that job? Were you, cause it, it seems really like, I guess, poetic, or you could say that you were, you would, to imagine you writing this, writing this book I mean, about a spaceport janitor, writing the diary entries. I, I think that, the initial first page of it um, came to me while while I was at least the concept of it came to me while I was um, working that job. I was living in Louisville. I hadn't met my partner Crystal at that at that time. I think some of the concepts came to me then, um, but it wasn't until I I moved here to Lexington and we had opened up our own bookstore. Uh, when I moved to Lexington, I worked for this bookstore, the used bookstore, and they had been here for 25 years and they were closing. And, um, you know, we scrounged up, you know, $10,000 to try to buy her remaining inventory and to take over selling used books. So, uh, I think the I think the majority of that poem was written being self-employed, <laughs> selling ten used books a day, <laughs> uh, which is why that had that closed after a couple of years. It's like yo, there's really no money to be made, but we did pretty well. There was a, a chain. There's a I don't want to mention the chain and give them props because fuck them, but. Uh, <laughs> A chain did us in. They opened up a second location here in Lexington. We were doing pretty well up until that point. You know, having a corporate chain of used bookstores in a small town pretty much undermines, you know, the, our efforts. So that that did us in. You'd have to be independently wealthy to have a small used bookstore here in Lexington at this point. Yeah, well, and 
Oh no, sorry. So yeah, most of the poem, most of the poem, most of that poem was written during that time, during uh, two thousand twelve to really up until it was published uh, earlier this year. I was still working on it. Um, I guess probably two thousand twelve to two thousand eighteen. Uh, the the majority of that poem was. Right, and I mean, how was um, if I can ask, how was like, how was your experience with that with that bookstore? What was that like? Oh, we loved it. We, we you know, we often, you know, we we closed that store. We were open for almost four years. Uh, it was a bookstore called the Wild Fig. All we had uh thirty thousand used books, and maybe five hundred new books that we sold. And it, it just uh, it stopped being a labor of love and started really consuming more than we could put into it. So we, we closed it. <coughs> and um, shortly after we closed, we had tried to move before we closed. Uh, the location we had looked at, someone else had beat us to it. So we just went ahead and ended it. And then like two months after that, uh, that landlord from the from the new location, he approached us. He's like, "Well, I've, I've got a a new spot if you're still interested." So at that point, it, there was no way for us to replace the thirty thousand used books. We had a going out of business sale. We, you know, donated at least fifteen thousand books to local charities, and um, so there was no way we were going to be able to replace that. We, you know, we had about a 2,200 square foot space. Uh, and the location that he was offering us was a house that was in a gentr uh, 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 area undergoing gentrification. And it was like 900 square feet. And it was like, we couldn't have a used bookstore in this. So we gave it some thought. Uh, we had a granddaughter pass away who loved the old bookstore. So, she would have wanted us to give her the try. So in her name and her honor, we said, okay, let's go ahead and try to do a new bookstore. And we had a cafe and, you know, Wild Fig used books became Wild Fig Books and Coffee. So, uh, you know, it was a small store. We had maybe 1,200 new books. Uh, you know, we had a cafe, it was a coffee shop. You know, we did lattes and... Uh, rotation of uh, cafe foods. Um, and we did that for three years, and then a co-op took it over a year ago. Almost to this day, it's like our last day was September 30th of last year. So it's Wild Fig Co-op now. And I hope they're being successful. I know it's kind of hard you know, trying to do a co-op, I, I, I try to help and advise them, uh, but they had their own idea. They were wanting to be a co-op. I don't know how to run an effective co-op. I know how to do retail and a capitalist branding, but, you know, I, th I didn't know how you're going to try to make money just, you know, doing the cooperative ideas they had. Like, it's good. It's very community building. Um, but I'm like, I don't think you necessarily have to have, we, they called us a 
the safe spot that would meet in our coffee shop and plan what they were going to do uh, community-wide. Where they couldn't go anywhere else in town and feel comfortable. They came to us and felt comfortable sitting in bookstore cafes. Um, you know, my concern when they took it over was like, well, you know, you still have to pay your rent. <laughs> you know, you still have to pay bills. I hope whatever your plan is, you know, you find ways to make money to be able to continue to do that or find ways to bother, you know, to get around that. I know they've struggled over the past years. I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping they're able to, for the sake of the store, come, come to some type of positive enlightenment. I did want to name the store, <laughs> you know, when we closed the used bookstore. Wild Fig was dead to me. It's like, okay, that Wild Fig had a good run. If we're going to do something new, let's have it, let's give it a new name. So if I'd made these t shirts, I came up with the name of, you know, PFK Books and Coffee. And it was, you know, Proof's know, Face Killer was what I wanted to call it. And uh, that got shot down. So my feelings are still hurt. I think there's a coffee shop in me. Coffee shop bookstore left me in the future. I don't know when I'll ever get to, but when I'll ever have the money to try to revisit that idea. But there's still a Proof's Face killer, something bookstore, or coffee shop in me somewhere. I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I was just asking because um, I think in the, the last time we talked, you mentioned you, you worked in a used bookstore for a while. And it just seems like, I don't know, like for me, used bookstores are like are really important to me to like finding books and whatnot. And it just seemed yeah, like I, it, yeah, it was the same way for you. You know what you're saying? My biggest regret was that um, I didn't keep enough of the poetry. The house we live in is small. And you know, my wife, she's a, she writes fictions. She's got two short story collections and a novel out. She's a university professor. So the house is real small. She's got... You know, when we met, she's already had her books. So I, I had a call what I brought here to Lexington. But when we closed the bookstore there, we had about 2,000 used poetry books, uh, which hurt my feelings because, you know, we had this going out of business sale and everything sold except for, like, the poetry. You know what? You know, most of the poetry, the used books ran, like, $3. And no one was buying it, you know, 75% off, you know, I going into our last week. <laughs> we couldn't get rid of it. Uh, so it, most of it ended up being donated. I, you know, handpicked maybe, maybe 10 books. But looking back, I wish I would have kept, you know, two or 300 of them. Um, just to you know, have that many small, a lot of them were, uh, you know, chapbook size. Books you'll never ever see in print, you know, from the seventies and eighties, nineties, um, and just looking back, I wish I had kept some of those just for the historic element of it, because they're probably in some landfill or recycling, been recycled, you know, by now. So I kind of regret that. That's that's gonna I'm gonna take that to my grave. Like, how oh, I did not save, you know. <laughs> Some unknown poet's book from you know 1987. They had that one really cool poem 
you know, and, and I wish I had, had done. So this is the word out to all the, anyone that listens to this, please go to your local used bookstore, find the used poetry selection and you know, find something old and cool and take that home with you and keep it. You know, cause what's going to happen to uh, Time Unraveler's travel journal? Where will that be? Where will someone's copy of that be 30 years from now? I would like to think, you know, someone would be like, oh, this is a collector's item, some, you know, so something similar to that. I don't want to think, yeah, you know, we, we read it and then we tossed it, you know, into the fire to make some more. But I hope it has a longer life than just sitting, you know, gathering dust for 50 years or before, you know, being dumped into a trash bin. Yeah, I hope so too. I find a lot of books like that in used bookstores. Um, I was going to say though, you're, you're, th this has been published by I think radical papers, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Radical press. Yeah. How'd that, how'd that come about? Um, well, he approached me for, um, the first chat book he put out for me back in January, uh, curious girl, Vita, uh, and I was happy. I was like, I hadn't. Uh, my friend here locally had published my chat books. Uh, I had um, a manuscript come out, um, first publication, uh, call and response, C-A-U-L and response, um, come out in 2015 through a press in uh, Ohio, uh, Argus House Press. Um, And I really hadn't, I don't really submit my work out to journals. I'm just, I'm, I, I like to write. Uh, I hate playing that game of, you know, I'm gonna submit my work to such and such journals for the sake of you know, just someone hoping, hoping someone sees this and, and prints it. But I'd rather it be, if I'm gonna submit, I'd rather it be for not just for the sake of being published for the sake of being published, but that, you know, that it, it goes to a journal or of like-minded poems or editors or writers or poets. Uh, I just don't want to have my poem sandwiched in with a ton of unrelated work. I don't know. It just doesn't appeal to me. And maybe it should as a, as a writer, I should, want to try to get my work into as many nooks and crannies as possible. Uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd rather, I, I, I much, I appreciate it when people come to me and ask me, you know, what I have. They, I've, I've saw your work online or wherever it might be. And I'm interested in more of it. Cause that feels, that feels more honest and sincere than, you know, me just, flooding all these journals with work and eventually hoping someone picks it up. And granted, you know, someone, if, it, if that were to happen, someone might see it and, and come back to me. But, uh, but so far, the people who have offered to publish my work uh, have become familiar 
from me directly and not because they read about it in some journal. It's like, I haven't seen this anywhere. Where can you have more of it to show me? I, that just feels better to have someone solicit me for work as opposed to be, you know, trying to, you know, find the market for it. Yeah, I totally agree. Like the process of submitting is, it's it's not a good it's not a good process. It's it's awful. It is. Um, even in trying to be selective, it's like you know, as a as a niche, much of a niche as I write toward, I think you know, black political mythological mythological poetry. It's like you know, I I might see a an inspirational you know, black poet, older black poet or someone who is judging a contest. I'm like, oh, this person might get me, <laughs> you know? And then, you know, of course you don't even get, the work doesn't even make it to them. It doesn't make any sense to whoever the first panel of judges. So it's, it's, there's no way. It's like, you know, it, I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking like, you know, this person, this judge would love my work if it gets to them, it's not going to get to them. You know, it's just not how it works. Uh, and I, I just, I'm not, I'm okay. I mean, my thing was, I've been writing since 85, so I, I thought that, um, you know, one day I'll die and maybe my kids will do the Prince thing of going through, you know, all my journals and being impressed and leaving it up to my kids and grandkids to decide if they're going to you know, publish me posthumously. So I, I never really thought that I would have a book out. That just was never been my motivation. I just, I just want to write the things that uh, appeal to me, that would appeal to someone like me. I don't think there are enough people like that. Now, maybe there are, and I'm just not aware of it, but that's the beautiful thing about the internet. You know, to find those like-minded people because they they may not exist in your immediate physical community, but but you can definitely find your tribe online. Yeah, I wanted to ask too. While like sort of on that topic, um, you know, like you you mentioned earlier that there's all these kind of world-building ish details, like um, I don't know, the Starbucks on the sun or um. Mm -hmm. Haiti um, sinking back into the sea in, was it 2052 because it got labeled a pollutant and all those kind of details. Like, you know, what, who, like, who are the writers like you, you look to in like sort of the Afrofuturist vein, I guess that, 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 that sort of comes from. Uh, well, primarily uh, Ishmael Reed, his, his poetry and his, his fiction is, uh, is you know all his work is like my my religion you know mumbo jumbo i think i said before is is my bible and uh, his poem um you know i'm a cowboy in the boat of Ra. probably my favorite poem vile poem so him definitely uh octavia butler as a writer, uh, her work. Um, I'm probably more, I grew up on comic books, so I'm inspired by a lot of, you know, 
you know, Thor's and Fantastic Four and Doctor Strange. I love Doctor Strange's comic book when I was younger. Uh, I even read the old Guardians of the Galaxies. <laughs> so when they, you know, were announcing that was being made to a movie, I'm like, that's going to be a flop. You know, it's like 10 people out there that's read that comic book. Uh, music, you know, uh, the disco era of music and the way they dress, funkadelic, uh, even with the early hip hop, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the way they dress was very futuristic to some extent. Um, or revisionary and of the elements that they would dress themselves in. Um, and then just looking at what was the traditional and seeing the futuristic in it, like Nina Simone and Muddy Waters uh, playing classic, you know, blues or folk music or whatever, but being able to look at those things and seeing the future, something about those works or their approach or their mentality that transcended just what they did. Those things, I found those things affirming as a as a creative. Romir Burden, um, you know, because I do collage, digital collage, um, and a lot of people know me more as an artist than as a poet. I knew my mother did <laughs> up until. Like 2006, you know, my sister outed me at Sunday dinner at my mother's house. Karen asked, you know, so Ronnie, what have you, oh damn, I gave my government name. What, <laughs> <laughs> what have you done? What have you written uh, lately? And, you know, my mother looked up and was like, writing, you know, she didn't know I wrote anything at all 12 years ago. Um, So that's how underground my writing, even though I had a, like a, my own, I had a, a poetry site that I ran like five years, once upon a time in the project. I had a strong community of poets there, but that thing really disbanded, you know, after MySpace and Facebook arrived, everyone left and was thinking like, well, I'm going to go be the center of my own universe and everyone's going to flock to me and I'm going to be famous. <laughs> you know, that was kind of like the thought. So the the community, the poetry communities kind of dissolved uh, around 2006 you know, completely as social media took over. Yeah, I would say too, like all those like influences and stuff you cited, like come through. Like there's a entry in the in the journal where uh, the uh, the janitors like imagining all the things that would change like all the art, all the black art that would, would be gone if uh, mm -hmm. he changed the world. Yeah. What was that? Yeah. Basquiat, uh, Romare Bearden, like, you know, all these things they have become iconic uh, in the black community as, you know, creation. The, the thing that bothers me about uh, black culture is that for the most part, we tend to lump it in under the category of survival or, our self-definitions seem to reflect our views on white supremacy. So we're always defining ourselves or redefining ourselves in opposition to our oppressors. And instead of just coming together and, you know, 
to deciding for ourselves who we are as a people and building off of that, you know, we, we, we are always building ourselves off resistance. You know, we stop calling ourselves colored or Negro because that's what white people call it. They call us colored. Well, we're going to be Negro. We don't want to be Negro. We're black. We don't want to be black. Uh, we're Afro-American. We're, we, we keep redefining ourselves in uh, every two or three generations or so because those definitions become comfortable to white people. And it's like, no, we don't want to be assimilated like that yet. So we're going to keep, we keep rebranding ourselves. And um, it's hard because I'm also, uh, my background as an artist, uh, is in graphic design, graphic and marketing and such. Um, so I understand branding. And it's, you know, that's what culture and traditions are, a form of branding for who your people are. And it's kind of hard to control your brand when every second a third generation, you're redefining who you are as, a, as an entire people, how you want to be portrayed or looked at. You know, there has to be, and I think there's a break from the last generation or two in black culture. It's like this distance has grown. Uh, older black cultures are viewed as antiquated. You know, the civil rights era is kind of viewed as antiquated about, by a lot of the modern, you know, uh, young youthful black folks now and some understand the lineage and how that continues to inform but a lot just look at it you know on social media especially they look at it and there's something to be ridiculed like oh y'all tried to get y'all freedom and y'all failed you know you know we're gonna we got it from here let us take the lead and it just seems like there's this reinvention of the wheel yeah well one thing Sorry, one thing I really wanted to ask you about was a line in the poem, like one of the dystopian kind of details where there's basically a TV show that's a sitcom about the heroes of the third civil rights movement. Yeah, there have been... Uh, <laughs> I don't know, my mind isn't always attuned into one logical thing. It's like in my mind, it's like, what, what, would, what would have passed in history over the next 500 years? Uh, there seems to be like we're heading now toward a second, you know, civil rights movement because so much has been lost or misinterpreted over the last 40 years. There seems to be we're going to have to come back to an origin point and, and as a collective and say, no, no, we need these are things we need to always protect. Uh, and we need to find a way to make sure that they are not assailable in the future. It's like these need to not just be amendments to the constitution there there needs to be a whole new constitution or something there that actually says you know all men are created equal and god damn it we mean it you know so, so you know there can't be this type of thing where we say uh are we allowed to feel that you know well, you know you know black people you've been free enough you know let's let's stop you're always whining about not being free uh there's always this blowback, you know, with this political correctness or whatever it is by the far right. And at some point, these things seem to become uh, mainstream thoughts to where, you know, like, you, you know, you, you get portrayed as whining, you know, or you go always talking about how you're oppressed. Yeah, you know, no one wants to hear that. 
And the sad thing is because of branding and the media, you will have, you know, black kids growing up thinking like, yeah, let's stop talking about that, you know, not understanding how they've been influenced by, you know, marketing and the media to look at themselves as, yeah, let's move away from this type of dialogue. Let's, but I think at some point we're going to have to return to that because it, it, it weakens our position. Uh, you know, there's almost no, you know, we need like a, a steady, like a def our own defamation league that stays uh, solid to a core set of beliefs, you know, that, that we always fall back on and say, this is who we are. This is who we're always going to be. Instead of ever letting every generation decide for all, or at least the how it's portrayed in the mainstream for how black people are going to look at that moment. We need something based on history and tradition and mythology and a consistent culture. Not that cultures can't be tweaked and changed as we go forward, but there needs to be a consistent baseline. I don't, I don't know if we have that. So a lot of my work plays into the idea of if there's going to be a consistent baseline, this is what it would look like, or this is how it would be addressed. So, yeah, I, I foresee that there's going to be, at some point, something similar to another need for a civil rights movement. Maybe that's what Black Lives Matter. Maybe that's, um, maybe that's kind of the pre prequel or the sequel to the civil rights movement. Um, or maybe that's the beginning of the sequel. Yeah, and I another thing, too, is um, I wanted to ask, like, because I finally got my hands on um, what was it, Ishmael Reed's collected poems the other day, mm -hmm. yeah. the one that came out a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, and I wanted to ask, like, because I was I re managed to read some of it, um, and like it seems like like to go off what you were saying earlier, like it seems like he spends more time like clowning on white people, and it's he's very funny, but. You you seem yeah. to spend less time, I'd say, say doing that than than he does. So I wanted to ask, like, yeah. how you how you kind of view your work as as different from his? Um. Well, because I I'm such in the, in a niche, it was like the you know, people always used to ask me who my audience was, and I would list like, well, my audience is like, you know, these ten dead, deceased, you know, black figures. These three living black figures and, you know, the snow bunnies under the bed, you know, it was like 20, my core audience was 20 folks tops. So he was one of the ones like, you know, this, I, write, I write this poem, hoping, hopefully one day and only that Ishmael Reed reads this poem. You know, it's like, I don't care if anyone else reads it. I hope Ishmael Reed reads it. This is a poem for him. So, um, So a lot of my work is, is, or my intentions is was is to be a homage to what he has given me as as a creator, uh, reading his work. I like, want to be able to pay him back. Like yeah, your your, what you've done has paid off, and for me, and I hope to continue, and build on that. I think my work, I, I I'm not as. Uh, creatively humorous as he is. I think I am in my mind, but I just, for some reason, 
my hand won't translate that to my work. I think a lot of the times um, being a product of, of the era that I came up, you know, a, a younger generation than Mr. Reed's, uh, and the way that militancy played out as opposed to maybe how it played out in his work, mine is probably a little bit more mean-spirited, and not necessarily mean-spirited, but um, I think there's a pressing urge in my work directed toward black people that we need to be more revolutionary as a community to offset the social ills that are befallen to us because of white supremacy. There were so many books. I worked for a used bookstore, wasn't a used bookstore, a black owned bookstore in, in Louisville in the eighties. Um, that he had hundreds of books. They were all uh, black authors. Um, many of them were books on history. Uh, you know, John Henry Clark, Professor Jope, Dr. Binyakinen, uh, Francis Cress Welsing, you know, Kanjufu. There were books on psychology, how to raise young black boys, black girls. Just an assortment of, you know, books that centered on black life and how to transcend, you know, oppression and supremacy. You know, the majority of those books don't exist now. As American politics grew savvy, it, you know, we had the, you know, the each one teach one was kind of like the call. It was in our music. You know, we had rap artists. Who's, who felt like it was their job to educate their listeners to, you know, black themes. Um, so it, it feels like a concerted effort on the part of commercialized American, mainstream America, where they said, okay, there's enough, there's, there's too much nation building going on in the substrata of America. Uh, so we need to find ways to co-op the countercultures and make those things uh, work in the service of, of the American narrative as a whole and not work against that American narrative. So in the 90s, you have college programs saying, OK, we're, we're going to introduce African-American studies programs. You've been you know, wanting African-American studies departments for years. We've ignored it. Uh, we're going to do that now. So, you know, you now have, you know, major white colleges offering African-American studies. Um, and you really can't, it's America. America doesn't work. America is never going to educate people to be uh, liberators against it. No, no, good, no government on earth teaches its people to be insurrectionists, you know, against it. It teaches you to point out those who are different and to bully them into submission, uh, either through patriotism or capitalism or some other means. Um, 
But no, there's not a nation on earth that teaches its people how to successfully rebel against its own oppressive agendas and system. It just that that's not how you create a stable government. You build up a mythology and you try to find ways to make your people buy into it. So, you know, America can't have its second-class citizens deciding for themselves, you know, who their heroes and their histories and everything, who their icons are going to be, that are going to remain forever independent of what's being said in the mainstream, you know, educational system or media or whatever. So, you know, that's, this is how you end up with, um, I have a poem, you know, Mad Cow and Special Sauces that was inspired by, you know, the Happy Meals boxes in the, you know, in the 90s. You looked up and you saw, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King during Black History Month on the side of a Happy Meals. It's like, how, how does it happen? What other, what other country takes its political icons and heroes and sells them, uses them as a marketing tool to sell children's toys or hamburgers? You know, they just seemed like the contradiction to liberation, this idea of assimilation over liberation. So no country teaches that. So I, those are the elements I'm always, I try to be, little, sometimes I'm subversive with it in my poems, even my love poems, but have something revolutionary, I, I would think, to me, in them. It's like, uh, you know, it's like I'm one secret black spy writing to another secret black spy <laughs> who reads my, my love poem and walks away thinking, yeah, we need to, you know, tear this shit up. We need to start over. So those are things I, I, I think is, if there's a difference between my work, Mr. Reed's, I think, you know, I think he's more clever with the way that he introduces those ideas. Uh, where I think I'm, I, I'm probably more of a spy, the James Bond type who writes poetry, uh, sending secret messages to other spies, liberationists. If there's a if there's a difference, that's probably what it is. In my in my mind, you know, maybe not at all. Yeah, no, I see that because um, one of the things that struck me about reading Reed's poems was how was how violent they were. He he has like a poem where he's like imagining, and, and this goes back to him being clever and funny. Him like imagining putting TNT in the ink wells of the members of Congress, so when they go to try and write yeah. their bills, they just like explode. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah and you know in your in your poems you're just like you're just like kind of one-off like yeah whatever let's go scalp columbus and you you continue on (laughs) yeah 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 um i think um i don't know i think i think that's the fiction writer in me or whatever narrative writer i want i don't want to i don't want to make it humorous I want to I want to do what Trump does, but for black poetry, I want to make my thoughts and ideas see I don't want the idea to be I don't want the sentence the the you know let's scalp Columbus to be the the gotcha aha that's what this whole poem is about 
it might be, but I want it to be embedded to where you, you read that line and you keep reading. And it, that seems normalized within the poem itself. That's not the turn. Like when I'm writing some gorgeous poem and, that, and then the twist is, oh, I scalped Columbus, <laughs> you know, in, in the process. I want it to be like you're reading this poem and it says something about scalping Columbus. But that's not the turn. You keep reading it, trying to figure out what the turn is, and you come to the end. And then you're just kind of left, you know, maybe like, well, what did I just read? Is it... But the whole poem is the turn, the whole poem itself. And that's the, the part of me, the part of me that does, you know, marketing and branding and understands the, you know, how you use these, uh, the marketing tools of being subversive with your images and your sayings. How you how language is used, how images are used uh, to reinforce propaganda. So there's a propagandist in me that's like, yeah, I, I don't want people to stop and gasp and be like, oh my God, he just you know, you know, shot the president. Like the coup had an album that came out uh, like two months before September 11th, where they were blowing up the World Trade. Trade Tower, World Trade Towers on the cover of their album, which had to be recalled after that, you know, because it made it seem like they had endorsed it or masterminded that. Um, you know, we had, uh, there was a rapper named Paris in the 90s who, um, on the cover of uh, his album, you know, he's hiding behind a tree with a sniper rifle you know, about to step out and shoot the first George H.W. Bush. You know, it, it's just he had all these uh, dangerous elements. You just don't see those things anymore. Uh, and some of that had gotten to the point that those things were like got you moments for people outside of the community. But within Black culture, you, you understood the context of that, and it wasn't necessarily like a surprise it's like it was just a building upon this idea of resistance to you know the, the supremacy and the oppression that existed it wasn't like that the, the big idea itself it was just an accumulated effect and i think that's why i want my poetry to be an accumulation of ideas even within the same poem uh to where the whole poem is, itself uh, is the statement and not not the individual Things I don't think I'll ever write poems where someone would specifically say on on Twitter, or someone would copy and paste and be like, "Oh, this particular poem is giving me life," <laughs> you know, uh, and it gets shared, you know, two hundred times or whatever. Um, I don't tend to write poems that way. I think there are things that people get from them they, and they love, but you know, I'm not going to have Ilya Kaminsky. Um, you know, tweeting anything, you know, you know, Maggie Smith ain't going to tweet my poems, you know, or her favorite verse. Because a lot of it tries to work. It's kind of hard sometimes to separate, you know, one particular line from the entire poem and have it make sense just as a line by itself. I don't know. Maybe I'm not making any sense. I probably need to be an educator. They've asked me to teach a poetry class uh, at the, our local Carnegie Center. 
and I wouldn't know how to go about it. I would, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea, but I wouldn't know how to go about doing that because there's still so much I'm trying to learn just so I can not even um, – so I could break the rules. It's like I don't want to be a traditional poet. I don't know how to have a class where I'm trying to teach people who are traditionalists uh, to be unconventional. I don't, I don't, I don't have the ability, that ability yet to be a teacher of that style that I'm still trying to manifest within myself. If I'm still going to be a poet, I don't know. Yeah, that sounds like a, <laughs> a cool opportunity. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to, how to do that either. Because like sometimes I'm like, what if I just like wrote a poem where every single line was just like something that Fox News would try and take out of context to to <laughs> cause panic. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how wise that is, but I've definitely done it. <laughs> so uh, I mean, Carnegie. I'm. Well, we we're trying to get some. We're trying to get a youthful movement pushed through Carnegie. A lot of the uh, poets. Uh, the Wendell Berry lives here, uh, and teaches at UK. There's. Uh, the poet, the the people who tend to use or support the Carnegie Center, I think the average age is probably sixty five. Uh, they have a lot of classes out of Carnegie uh, that are taught by older, established poets of the area, uh, seventy year olds or so. So, so we're trying to push. That's 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 those are the people who primarily support uh, Carnegie. And they'll have events from time to time, which are, you know, all ages of writers. But still, there's like a certain demographic of supporters. And we're trying to find out ways, you know, we talk with the, the people who work there. It's like, you know, how can we find ways to, I mean, Ada Lamone lives here in Lexington. And you almost never see her locally appear on, in any events. And you're, you're always looking up and... You know, especially last year, I'd look up and I'd see Ada was, uh, she's in Minneapolis, she's in Portland, she's in New York. She's in, it's like, why can we not get her and her friends to come here to Lexington and improve the the writing community the way it's perceived here? Why haven't we done that? What can we do to try to change? So, you know, we're trying to, you know, get that to happen. And maybe, you know, once that happens, then maybe I could have a class and have you know, people who come in and who are interested in the type of poetry I would try to teach because I can't see me teaching, you know, abolitionist, uh, liberationist poetry, you know, to 75-year-old, you know, horse farmers, you know, people who, you know, this is Lexington, you, horse money is big here, so. Um, I don't know, I just don't uh, I just I, I can't that that is that would just be a very surreal thing to me. I just can't imagine it. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about like the local scene there because it, it seems like your wife's involved in that. And there's a lot of I know there's a lot of you know like black writers for, who come out come out of Appalachia, like whether it's like Frank Walker or like Bell Hooks. I was gonna ask like you know if you have any yeah. relation with them, and it sounds like you know your wife does to some extent, maybe. Oh yeah, her and the her and Bill, they're 
they don't speak down with each other, like best friends. And uh, you know, Frank is here, Appalachian poet, started here. My wife is App, she started this Appalachian, Appalachian poet, uh, one of the original members, uh, even though she writes fiction, she hasn't written. She's just really starting to get her poetry collections together. She's been writing poetry sporadically and it's you know, fabulous. Uh, but yeah, the, the writing community, there are, uh, tons of fabulous writers here in Lexington, but for some reason we don't have, we haven't developed the community to properly support them, not the younger one. If you're older, uh, grizzled poet, you're more likely to be celebrated or to have some type of event uh, that celebrates you and your work. Um, if you're a younger, slightly younger poet, uh, there's really nothing here separately. You, if there's an event for older poet, one of these older venerated poets, you know, there may be room to work you into that program. Uh, it's kind of like a disciple of these poets. Uh, but there really isn't, a, we really don't have any type of events that we have here that really highlight the talent that we have. And that's kind of sad. It's like, why, well, why not? This is a college town, University of Kentucky has, you know, what, 30,000, 35,000 students? Um, why can't we find a way to tap in into them? And, you know, maybe that is something that'll happen. I know UK has just recently started its own MFA program. So they're trying to grow toward maybe having that type of community established, but we just don't have it for right now. I think that's just the nature of Lexington more than anything else. So, and, you know, maybe it'll come with time, but it's gonna it's gonna involve dedication to trying to make that work. And I don't think there's any organization really dedicated to achieving that. So, which is sad. Yeah, so, yeah. We have Frank Walker here. You know, Nikki Finney was here. For, she taught here and she left uh, a few years ago uh, to return home to take care of you know, her ailing parents. Uh, we just lost out of uh, Louisville uh, a poet. Uh, uh, oh, what's her last name? Nikki. I can't get the last name. Uh, I want to say Pelicino. Um, well, I just discovered Last year, she's one of the last poets we had in the bookstore before we closed or changed hands. Uh, she's out of Louisville and she's got like three or four collections and they're fabulous. And I'm like, you know, no one knows who she is in the state. Uh, she teaches at, uh, she taught at UofL before she left. I thought how sad that we had this, this great talented, you know, poet uh, locally, regionally, and we just we just didn't have we just don't have the resources or the avenues to properly, you know, present these poets and writers. I was disappointed, and, and even with my wife, you know, 
she's very popular among Appalachian. You know, you know, white women are her base. Country, southern. Um, a lot of the you know the writers that we have locally are actually probably more famous outside of the state than they are within the state. It's the same way with Bell Hooks. We actually had her in our bookstore, our used bookstore, uh, where she gave a little um, lecture uh, one night. We had maybe 35, 40 people show up, like students from Berea. She teaches, she's on the staff at Berea. It's like half an hour away from us. Had a lot of young students, but I was kind of disappointed in you know, the the actual people from Lexington, the older folks who weren't students. I kind of thought some of them would have showed up to support. You know, that really didn't happen. You know, so it was kind of like, who doesn't show up for Bill? I would have. I would have driven half an hour. You know, to see her. Um, but um, I don't know. It just the, the atmosphere is kind of just odd here in, in Lexington, in the state. And there's tough now to try to reinvigorate it. So hopefully we'll get to that point. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, how well, the the government or whatever is unlikely to support um, that sort of work that imagines something separate or radical from, you know, the the U.S. mythology. Yeah, that's you're asking for a lot, and those things do happen, uh, but ty- typically they're not made into or allowed to be systemic. You know, you if you want to label yourself as an outsider, this is outsider art, uh, or this is slam poetry, or whatever the outlet is. It's very seldom allowed to be, to present itself as the leading trend of thought. You know, it's always uh, those are the black poets or those are the transgendered poets or the gay poets or, or they're speaking for our niche subject, which is fine. America loves its niche subjects. Uh, they just hate it when the niche rises to a level of uh, equivalence with the mainstream or tries to become ingrained into the mainstream. That's when these things get a little bit, they get pushed back. So that's, for me, that's always the, my, that the prison of my work. It's like, how do you become mainstream without getting your head shot off? What is that magic formula? What do you have to sacrifice within yourself? And, or should you? Uh, or what can you do within your culture as a subculture, as a counterculture? How can you develop that and keep it hidden from what's going on or from the prying eyes of a Cointel or Twitter? <laughs> how, do you, how do you go about living your life creating something uh, that might be, that will be seen as subversive if it was ever seen by the light of everyone. Else. How do you make this a systemic thing? And I, I don't know. 
I don't know how we develop. I think, I think the poetry that I write, the things I create, I think those things would have been welcomed uh, in the 70s uh, where counterculturalism was, it was definitely a thing apart. It wasn't mainstream. It wasn't commercialized. Uh, it didn't seek sponsorship. Yeah, and I guess yeah. oh no, what were you saying? Go ahead. I'm just I was just saying that you know you really can't like you know Afropunk. I love Afropunk that that happens out of I think maybe a lot a lot of, a lot of large communities have Afropunk festivals now, uh, but those seem to be or seem to be a mainstream element to that, which is good uh, on one level. Uh, but also on a, a lesser, when things become mainstream, they t they tend to they tend to lose some of its meaning for why it became a thing to begin with. Like, you know, like with dreadlocks. You know, I've it's like my third set of dreadlocks. But back in the seventies or eighties, early eighties, you know, dreadlocks were those things was a sign of resistance. It was like the new afro, and the meaning for it, it was uh, revolutionary. It stood for some type of sense of integrity. Uh, but by the 90s, you know, there were, it was just almost as a fashion statement. It kind of had lost its relevancy. And people, you know, even though it's still, to a lot of people, it's still uh, contentious. Like, you know, you'll see some teacher in the news who has cut a student's hair, asked them to cut their hair because they don't approve of the hairstyle. So those elements are still there, but as far as you know, you know, black folks, the meaning of you know dreadlock uh, coming out of the you know the mountain dreads of you know Jamaica and you know, what it what it meant, uh, this element of resistance and guerrilla warfare culture that came from that, you know, dreadlocks has lost that type of meaning. It's just you know a hairstyle, you know, it's, I mean, even if it's rebellious to a, to an extent. Uh, it's not militant, you know, there's a difference. So, um, I don't know. Well, I guess, I guess I wanted to ask you when you mentioned the, the Marvel movies and comics before, like, I wanted to ask you too, like, especially with respect to, you know, stuff going mainstream, like, how do you, how do you view like all this, these comic book movies that have come out and really gone mainstream the past few years? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, I, I, as a comic book head, I I enjoy it. Uh, you know, there was a comic book, and I can I can't find it now. I've, I've looked years, but I remember reading it when I was like fourteen or so. And there was like a what if, or maybe it wasn't a what if. You know, that was the title of the what if brand of comics that Marvel had. I don't know if it was an actual what if or if it was just some. At the end of a, sometimes what ifs would appear in the back of, a, like a Thor, or Captain America, something, whatever the the mainstream comic, and then there would be like a what if, which was like five or six pages long. Uh, then they had the what if that was that was its own comic book, but there was a for the the Captain, the original Captain Marvel in in the comics was black, uh, not Marvel who. 
Captain Marvel uh, got her power from, but before Carol Danvers, Monica Rambeau was the original Captain Marvel. And she had went back in time, used her powers to go back in time. And in the story, she had reversed the possessions of the fortunes of black people and white people to where white people were the ones who had been enslaved and were seeking civil rights from, from black people. You know, the end of the, at the end of the story, you know, she's kind of like, you know, black people are treating white people like crap, like shit. You know, just all the roles are reversed and the, all the privilege exists among black people. And at the end of the story, the last couple of pages, it's like there's this big floating uh, godlike heads of all the white superheroes from the original timeline pleading to Captain Marvel saying, you know, this, you know, this isn't the way to go about it. We need to seek justice and all this other stuff. Uh, but this isn't, you know, changing history isn't the way to go about, you know, a hero's work. Uh, and they just pleaded to her, you know, her more sense of morality. So she gave in and, you know, returned everything back the way it was, <laughs> you know, and uh, it was such a, I remember reading, coming to that just as a young child, like, you know, youthful child, a teenager thinking, yeah, you know, let's you know, turn the tables. Let us be privileged for a while. Let us enjoy that. Uh, and that felt like such, it was so heartbreaking for me to get to that. And it's like, oh, no, we're, you know, we're going to return to, to, the, to the original race and status quo and, you know, live our life like that. So I have spent years trying to find that. I'm like, I know I didn't dream that. I, that has stayed with me for years. Uh, and, and probably, you know, maybe even this poem has some roots in that. Um, but I've been unable to find it. I just, I have looked to all kind of Google searches, what ifs, and I've just, I've, I keep coming up empty. So I'm like, did, <laughs> did they just completely uh, destroy that? So what, what has had that? It just seems, I don't see, I don't think that would happen, but I just can't see why I can't find copies of that book on the internet. I would pay a hundred dollars. I'd have to get a job to do it. Well, <laughs> if anyone, anyone listening has it, <laughs> I you know even if it, you know PDF or something of it, I'd, anything. Uh, but um, that would just that, yeah, that tore me apart for just that one moment. Like, and then to have it ripped from up under you. You know, oh, we're accepted. We're privileged. Uh, we're not the ones being downcast. Uh, let us be the ones to rise high and, you know, find ways to be equal with whites. Let's, instead of the reverse, waiting for whites in the reality of it, like that hasn't, that really hasn't worked to our advantage. You know, we, we find forms of some acceptance. There's always a plateau or a ceiling for us. And, uh, and then, you know, it, it can be undone by the next generation. You know, it's, it's, it's a frustrating thing to think like, yeah, we finally have reached a stage of equality to where we can begin to be patriotic. If that's the thing you, you're seeking for, you can, you can, now we can just be American. And then something happens, you know, just the, the nature of society changes. And all of a sudden, 
uh, you're having to, you know, redress, readdress old wounds you thought had, you know, been, you know, properly, properly bandaged and, you know, not healed. But you thought the wounds had been cleaned and maybe some type of antiseptic had been applied. You know, we, yeah, we can move forward and then, you know, all those wounds will reopen. At what point will our society ever get to a point where, you know, we we allow those wounds to heal and we actually do things progressively to achieve that? We just refuse to do that as as a society, and it's it's baffling, frustrating. Yeah, and to go back to something you said earlier too, like it seems like a lot of this like radical language ends up being co-opted by savvier versions of the state or the media or whatever like you know i remember thinking that when like the new york times did that 1619 project i was like it's it's wild that they're out here talking about capitalism and slavery but on the other hand it's like this is just like a watered down version of work that a lot of black historians have been doing for like literally a hundred years I mean, that was the knock on uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, that allowed the, the, the dialogue around reparations. Um, a lot of the older heads were offended. It's like, he's, this isn't new. You know, a lot of what he's saying is rehashing uh, conversations that were, were had in the 60s and 70s. So uh, America has gotten good at that. <laughs> They're of placing... Uh, distance historically between conversations to where things seem relevant today. And it's like, no, these have been things we have lost the proper context. Everything is now and me and we aren't as connected to history outside of propaganda as we need to be as a people. We, we, we grow up pretty much um, insular to the history, American history. So I had a conversation with someone a week ago. There's there's a hashtag uh, ADOS that's been growing in online primarily uh, as a movement of black folks who call themselves the American descendants of slavery uh, to separate themselves from African immigrants who have come through since the end of slavery, who, you know, I guess the whole movement is about reparation. And I guess there's some type of distinguished, like, well, you wouldn't be eligible for reparations. You know, you, you are African here. You're not African-American. So uh, I was arguing with someone there are a lot of people who don't want to, a lot of black folks who don't want to call themselves, who don't identify, won't identify with, with that name. It's like, I don't, I'm not an American descendant of slavery. I, I, I might, I don't know what my title is. I don't know what my name is for myself or my people. Or, but it's, it's not going to be that. And people are taking their offense. Like, we're trying to win reparations for, for black people. You know, how dare you... Uh, you know, talk bad about us. And it's like, we're not talking bad about, no one is saying 
uh, know the reparations. And, and, and the gentleman I was talking with, he didn't know that reparations really uh, was a conversation that was being had before the invention of ADOS. <clears throat> I was like, no, this has been going on since, you know, 40 acres and a mule. <laughs> you know, this, the, the, the whole idea of reparations and how to, you know, properly address those wounds uh, have been part of the, the conversation since, if not since the Civil War, then, you know, even, even before that, you know, leading into it. How do we, how do we start looking at, at Black people not just as three-fifths, but actually as humans, you know? Uh, this has been part of that conversation for centuries, you know, 400 years here. And, but there are a lot of black folks, young black folks who aren't, you know, they, for whatever reason, uh, didn't learn those things in school. Um, they were glossed over when I was coming up in grade school. You know, there was, you know, they were mentioned slavery and Frederick Douglass and all the other abolitionists leading up to the Civil War. Um, there might be a chapter, or not a chapter, but a paragraph or two, or a small, smaller section that discuss reparations. But apparently those things aren't discussed at all in American history books. I haven't seen an American history book in years, so I don't know what the education system is teaching. I just know that I'll see the comments where someone will say, I was never, I was never taught this in my high school or in my elementary school. These these ideals were never introduced to me, uh, which is where America has stepped in and reshaped reshaped that because those things, even if it was just a sentence or two, those things were mentioned at least uh, because those were the pressing issues. We were still trying to win, you know, equality. So there was some there, there had those those are the issues that they framed who we were. Even they weren't talked about in the mainstream. Reparations wasn't talked about in the mainstream, <clears throat> but it was talked about by the black intellectuals and the poets, the philosophers who existed. Uh, you just had to go to that work, but it was there. And a lot of the modern, you know, the, today's youth, a lot of them aren't aware of, of that information. It just, it just doesn't exist as readily as it did for us. Yeah, and like, I'd say you, you try and dive into that history a lot in the, in the, in the time on, on Traveler's Travel Journal, too. Because like, to return to like you, to, to return to um, the part about Haiti, you know, you talk about how Haiti paid reparations to France for, for I think you know, like 150 years after, yeah, their, their successful after rule. Yeah. And which is baffling is like they won their independence, but it, it came at the cost. France was like, okay, look, we'll end the war with y'all. We'll stop warring. We're tired of it. Um, but you've got to agree to reparations all to what our white farmers have left, what they have lost because of your freedom. You have to turn around and pay them, pay them reparations for their loss, and that's just like the craziest concept. It's like we fought for freedom, but we're going to turn around and pay you, you know, the the value of you know whatever it is that you 
$80 million or so, I think, was the expense. What uh, was the, the total they said that they were due? I had to pay France. It's just it's crazy. And we talked about why France is poor. Poor France finally took from that time to, I think, 1946 or 52 to finally you know, pay that debt off. Um, and it's just, it's, it's baffling, but we, that, that plays a part in why Haiti is still poor to this day. It's like they, that was a huge financial burden on their head that they had to pay back as a result of, you know, their commitment to that debt they, and their sense of freedom. But yeah, we can't, we, we won't dare address, you know, the idea of reparations in a positive light for, for African-Americans. We pay reparations to those we held in uh, concentration camps, the Japanese, you know, during World War II. Um, there was a form of reparations given to Native Americans, like, okay, we're gonna stop warring with you. You know, we're gonna give you land, where sovereign lands, territories for you to, you know, have your own. Uh, they went through a, uh, You know, a holocaust of their own were able to keep their own land, and develop their own, maintain their own sense of identity and culture. Uh, after World War II, dropping bombs on uh, Japan the way we did, we still came in and helped aid rebuild their infrastructure as reparations, you know, to end in that war. There's, we're not, the idea of reparations is not new to America and how it repays its debts but only in regards to how it deals with black people, which is the frustrating thing. Um, the Nation of Islam used to ask for reparations in the form of uh, like four Southern states. <laughs> it's like we, they wanted farmland and access to uh, seaports as part of reparations. I think it was like Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, maybe Mississippi, uh, with the four Southern states that they wanted as reparations for slavery, for black people to build upon as a as an independent people. Um, I don't know if that's still part of their, uh, you know, their plan or their focus or not. And you know, it used to be it, it existed. So I don't know. I don't know how we go forward with the idea of, of reparations here in America. Uh, it doesn't have to be cut and dry as like, you know, you pay a check, there are, you know, let there be, you know, spread it out across American industries, you know, whether it's with housing or medical, you know, offer, you know, give some black folks the uh, congressional, you know, the free health care, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe it's that. It doesn't have to be the same thing. It could be free education or educational assistance. Uh, everyone's needs are different. It doesn't have to be like, yeah, we, we don't have the money to cut a check, but let's not ask you to cut a check. But let's use some of the programs that already exist for certain aspects of American, certain members of American society. Let's open those things up and, you know, grant the best of those ideas to, you know, to African-Americans and let them choose for themselves and, you know, what form their reparations will be. You know, what I need as a 52-year-old man is not the same that I would have needed as a 25-year-old man, you know, as far as what would have helped me 
what I could benefit from as a person. <coughs> so it doesn't have to be like, you know, cut and dry, black and white, like either, either there's a check or it's not. You know, maybe that is for some people. They option and say, well, they're just, I won't do this so much back as in, in reparations. You know, pay it over, you know, my lifetime, you know, 10 years, 20 years, or it doesn't have to be one lump sum. There's a way for us to work it out. Uh, we just have to be adult enough to have that conversation. Yeah. Um, I guess, is there anything else you, you wanted to talk about on the, about the, the shop book? Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm not good at that, that sort of thing. <laughs> I yeah. I tend to be self-deprecating, and it, you know, my partner she hates that. She's like, you know, anytime like I just did a reading, uh, was uh, participated in the reading a couple of nights ago, uh, and it's probably been the first time I've done a reading since like February. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a hermit. I'm kind of reclusive in in my, in who I am. Uh, so getting me out of the events is like kind of a big deal for a lot of people. Like, oh, right, you know. You know, Brother Dirt's going to be there. Oh, my God. Like, you know, it's an earthquake or the end of the world. What's going on? But, uh, yeah, I, I tend to get on them. You know, like the first time I've read a poem anywhere in Louisville, uh, you know, maybe 2003 or 2004, you know, I, I began it with a poem I wrote that day specifically for the reading. I don't like reading. And you know, I started off with, you know, I'm not the type of poet you came here to like. <laughs> you know, it's just, um, and they snap my fingers and shit at that shit. I'm like, y'all are stupid. And I you know, like the whole poem, the whole poem discs, you know, people who come out to poetry events. And it was a disc to the, to the audience, and they loved it. I'm like, see, that just proves my point. So uh, I think I'm, jaded as to who my audience would be anyway but hopefully they i don't know anyone out there listening then all my poems are for you they love you uh <laughs> but in reality it's like no i'm still stung you know when you opened up the last you no know, podcast asking me so so i heard you hate academics or something <laughs> yeah i saw you made a threat about that <laughs> <laughs> that that's still I still feel seen by that. Like, yeah, I, I do and I don't, and I do and I don't. I don't want to. Uh, yeah, that was that was more of a tongue-in-cheek <laughs> question, I think, because I I don't think you really do. You, there's so many but, academics you clearly love. There, there is a part of me that does, and uh, probably that stance has been softened because my partner is academic, but even she doesn't, you know, fully like academics. So I'm I'm, I'm okay with that, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Well, yeah. I don't know. But I, I, that's, that's part of my own journey, trying to still identify myself. I'm, I'm thinking about going to uh, back to school. I've never, I mean, I went to UK like for two years back in the 80s. You know, I couldn't major in alcoholism, so they kicked me out. So, um, and I spent a couple more years at the community college doing graphic design and marketing and stuff. Uh, I was a young father and a new husband, so I kind of, you know, gave that up to work factory. But um, I'm thinking about going back to school and 
in the spring, which is like a, just a strange concept to me. So, so wait, hold on. You have a choice between going to teach classes or become a student again? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the teaching <laughs> class is like a, like a, just a community, like old folks center type of thing. It's not, it's not like a real teaching. I have no degree. I have like maybe eight college hours and however many years I spent, you know, floundering in school. So, uh, um, so it's just based on the, the, any teaching I do will be based on the aspect of me being known as a poet and an artist and the, and the Carnegie Center it would, you know, you don't have to be, you know, degreed or anything to teach these classes, you know, work, basically it's a workshop. It's not an actual class, I should say. It's more of a workshop. Uh, where you could probably just like, you know, draw the shape of a pillow on a whiteboard and say, you know, what does this represent to you and write about it, <laughs> you know, and that's probably the extent of what I'd be asked to do. But Oh, I meant that reminds me, I meant to ask you, you had that line in there about the, the NSA pillows with Bluetooth recorder, with Bluetooth uh, mics, like recording your dreams and you could get arrested from that for them. Was that yeah. was that because um, what was it the MIT Media Lab did that did that like you they would put mics and pillows? No, that's just me. That's uh, I spent like the the early two thousands, uh, especially around uh, after nine eleven. Uh, that's just the conspiracy theorist in me, uh, which it took you know years for me to push down. You know, it's like okay. Well, I'm not helping no when I tell me. you that that's real then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I don't dismiss it. I, there's a part of me, there's a part of me that work. I walk in two worlds. That that world where I know all this stuff that seems uh, uh, absurd sounding. If you say it out loud, I know this stuff exists. You know, if if I can think of it, somebody else has thought of it. If somebody has thought of it, somebody's found a way to try to profit. Uh, that's just how, that's how the world works. Uh, so I know that it exists, um, but because I don't have my own army, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, there's nothing I can do about it, but try to keep my head down and make my way as best I can in, in the world that I have. Because if I were to act on my impulses, I probably would not be alive right now. It's like the revolutionary part of me that's like, That wants change now. He would have stormed the street if I if I were to live up to that idea. I would have stormed the street and died a temporary martyr by now. You know, I would have made the news like you know some idiot rush. You know, the this political figure or the authorities or the police uh, with guns blazing, you know, spouting some half-assed philosophy and was gunned down in the streets. Uh, but next up. Uh, cat and gives birth to puppies, <laughs> you know. In the next, so it's like you know what what would it what would my death mean besides just fulfilling my own sense of you know, my own madness? So you have to find ways to you know be aware of the NSA listening pillows that exist, and then still finding a way to because you don't have a way to. to properly combat that type of thing 
you have to keep your head down and flip burgers or go to class or whatever it might be to help act as your drug against that, you know, as relief, your relief valve, you know, maybe just write poetry or create art or go to work or sweep, you know, be a street sweeper or whatever it might be to help you cope with the things that are beyond your ability to immediately affect. Yeah, that reminds me of, uh, I think in the second Surrealist Manifesto, I think Andre Breton wrote something like, the most surrealist thing you can do is to grab your gun and run out into the run out into the street and start firing or something like that. It's like, not sure that's a good idea. Uh, not in the immediate and, and certainly not in a, in a way in which America has gotten so good at, you know, controlling the chaos that happens on its soil and spinning it to where uh, if it's something horrific or tragic, uh, it makes those who protest against it, you know, seem to be like they're the ones in the wrong. America's gotten great at that, a controlling spin. So, you know, you, it's hard to be a revolutionary in America. I mean, we, you have Fred Hampton who has his door kicked in in the middle of the night. <laughs> he is shot in his bed. Uh, his pregnant wife is shot. Uh, she survives. How do you not, how do you wake up the next day, see that headline, and then go to work? You know, that someone who had had the best interests of the working class people that, in, in mind has been targeted for assassination by your political system. And yeah, well, I still have to go and make washing machines or whatever it is. Still go, I'm still going to go to class. I'm still going to do this. I, I just, I don't, that, that's a strange concept for me. Like, you know, when Russia invaded Crimea uh, a few years ago and the citizens resisted and they had, you know, news footage of uh, citizens down the streets throwing rocks next to their grandmothers and next to their infant children toddlers all out in the streets, all these three generations of protesters, all with a common interest to try to repel these tanks coming down their streets and they're throwing rocks and bottles, anything they can grab, plastic and tanks. And we don't do that here in America. We don't, our protests aren't multi-generational or they take place on different platforms. You know, we, our youth take to the streets, our Elders take to MySpace or Facebook, <laughs> but we're not all out in the streets of, of various ages from, you know, from kindergarten to, you know, the old folks center. We're not all out in the streets throwing rocks at the same time at the same. And America has gotten great finding ways to, in which to placate each generation separately from those from the other generations. And I don't know how we get a, get past that this point. Like what system do we have to have in place secretly that would allow us to act and be like, we won't change. These are the changes we want as a society for the benefit of everyone, not just of us within it, but for the benefit of everyone. How do we go about 
incorporating that that doesn't become mainstream thought and debated on Facebook and then, you know, dismissed for the next new thing, which is what America is, is good at doing. So you don't want to be a revolutionary out in the streets, you know, shooting at what you think is your, what's holding you back, you know, society ill, and then you die as a result of it because the system is not meant to embrace you or to remember you as a hero. You know, there, there will be no George Washingtons on the side of liberation on, on American soil again. Any George Washingtons we have will be in the service of empire which is what George Washington was against, you know, when he battled against the, you know, the British Empire, was wanting to represent uh, his own American interests, his own wealthy interests, but it was against empire. And there's no way for us to do that now without, because we, we're, almost all of us are, our lives are so intertwined into what the empire has, the way it has weaved itself into our lives on an everyday basis. We feed back into the empire, whether we intend to or not, you know, just by our existence. Anytime we leave our house, for the most part, is going to be in service of empire. You know, how do we go about changing that? The right throws all its money into education, re-education of its people. Those philosophies and programs designed, you know, to keep us patriotic and in step with consumerism, capitalism. But no one on the left is doing the same thing, is taking their billions of dollars to counter that. And that's what it would take. It would take those with, with the monetary means to support the systems meant to counter what, you know, the, what the right conservative or whatever you want to label it, you know, capitalism, consumerism. I mean, that's his definition, to take money and to put it back into itself, perpetually keep itself going. Um, how does the left develop that same system? What keeps going back into the system to feed itself so that it's able to become self-perpetual? And we have to figure that out, those of us who see ourselves as resistors to being part of a regime that isn't necessarily, doesn't have all of the citizens, the best interest of everyone at at heart, it has its own interests at stake. How do we go about creating and maintaining a system that will actually help move us away from it? And that's where we are, taking to the streets with guns. <clears throat> you know, maybe that can be an instigator for, or initiator for some of that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's <laughs> going to be lasting, like, you know, an outcast you know, has an lyric like, you know, they, 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 they made your gat. You know, they could blow out your back from where they live at. They don't have to leave their house at all to wage a war with you. You can be out in the street waging all the war you want and never be able to come face to face uh, 
with the actual enemy of who you're trying to liberate yourself. They can still touch you, touch your life from a distance. How do you go about protecting that? You know, how do you decide, you know, like in, in my poem, when do you, what is worthy of sacrifice for, for the larger goal? Do you surrender your family and your lifestyle on the hope that, you know, maybe things will be different? Are you willing to commit yourself to that? So, you know, that's, that's where we are. And I don't, I don't know how, what the next philosophy or the next step, you know, what it would take for us to get to that point to collectively say, yeah, this is it. This is our plan. This is what we're going to do. And it may not happen in this generation. We, we, this might be two generations from now. But this might be the start of that process. Or, or maybe it ends with us. Maybe it doesn't even make it to the to the third generation. Maybe it ends. But the, because that's the other thing that America does. You can have, you can revolt against your parents. Your parents could be on the far right. Your parents might be hippie. But America teaches you to be individuals and to find your own person. And sometimes it's going to lead you away from how you were up, upbraided. So being raised in a liberal household, you may not be liberal at all. And that's the freedom that American gives you, which is on one level a good thing, but trying to sustain a movement is, is bad for that because you can be as revolutionary as you want. You can overthrow the system. The system is designed to absorb that and outweigh you and then appeal to your kids to restore, you know, whatever order existed before that, to represent itself in a different light, which is, I think, is going on now, especially uh, in our politics where you have, you know, such admiration for fascism existing in our nation now. Uh, It just it, it just baffles me that that idea has grown and has found a commercial footing in a in such a huge part of our American population. It's like, don't you know that if fascism does not love you, it's going to crush you like it will anyone else as soon as you stop being the father for it. Uh, it when it no longer needs you, it, it turns against you to keep itself going once you've allowed it to run rampant. I don't understand the love that so many, and it, it, just, it, it just feeds back into this system that's probably grown too big for itself at this point uh, and needs to be broken. You know, there's not a, that's what happens to every government in, the, in any history, you know, from the Roman Empire, from the Egyptian empires before the Roman Empire. You just grow so large at some point that, only way to keep surviving is eventually something breaks off or breaks apart and becomes something else. Um, but we're, you know, it's kind of hard once you, you grow up and you're like, well, do I want to get rid of my cell phone? How will that affect? Will I have, be able to afford the iPhone 12? <clears throat> you know, I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait for the next Iron Man movie or, you know, Spider-Man movie. Now that he's back in the MCU. I, I don't want to miss that. You know, how do you, turn your back on that part 
of your upbringing to embrace something that that you don't know that doesn't really fully exist only in theory or in limited historical runs that you can point to and say see it worked you know for this people during this time you know during this era how do you just completely shift toward that um, and we have to find that we have to find out a way embrace these ideological systems make them real and then find a way to make them lasting otherwise yeah. everything we do you know you, you don't want your efforts to be done in vain um which is what so many of us are doing right now whether you know it's not our intention <laughs> we don't want to die in vain we don't want to you know say these such revolutionary things or have revolutionary ideas and then at the end of the day, you know, just to, to, to disappear. So I don't, I don't, I don't have the answer just outside of poetry. I keep writing.